This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Cathy Leahy, Senior Curator of Prints and Drawings at the National Gallery of Victoria, alongside her colleague, Caitlin Breer, Conservator of Paintings, also at the NGV. They joined me to discuss the NGV's exhibition, Rembrandt, True to Life, which features the work of the 17th century Dutch master Rembrandt van Rijn. With more than 100 etchings from the NGV's own collection, there are also some very important paintings and loans from other museums like the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam and the Louvre Museum in Paris. Cathy and Caitlin talk about Rembrandt's printmaking as well as his oil painting, not only the contents and subjects of those paintings and prints, but also the way he made them. They also talk about Rembrandt's fascinating life and his obsession with collecting rare objects. We're going to be talking with two fabulously talented professionals in the art world, and they are from the National Gallery of Victoria. I'm so excited to welcome onto the program Cathy Leahy, who is Senior Curator of Prints and Drawings, and also Caitlin Breer, um, who is Conservator of Paintings, both based, as I said, at the NGV. And we are going to be talking about the exhibition that is currently on at the NGV. It's wrapping up soon-ish. It closes on Sunday, the 10th of September, so you still do have time to go. I got to see it myself. It's called Rembrandt True to Life, and it features over 100 etchings from the National Gallery of Victoria's collection. It is quite an extensive and very special collection of Rembrandt prints. Uh, It also features, though, some really stunning paintings and drawings that are on loan from other places around the world, including the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., the Louvre Museum in Paris, the Kunsthorisch Museum in Vienna, and the Tyler's Museum in Harlem. Uh, There's also a really amazing Cabinet of Curiosities or Kunstkammer, as they say. Sometimes they also call them Wunderkammers. And that also has been um, drawn from a range of other collections, including the Melbourne Museum, the University of Melbourne and the State Library of Victoria. So it's a clearly a team effort, but it certainly does draw very heavily on the NGV's own collection of prints, drawings and paintings as well. So it is my pleasure to welcome them both on the show. Hi there, Cathy. Hi, Annie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. And hi there, Caitlin. Hi. It's really great to have you both. And I know that um, you have been working on such fascinating areas. And Caitlin, you even contributed an essay to the exhibition catalogue, which talks about your conservation work on one of the Rembrandt paintings in the show. Of course, there are questions around who, in fact, did the painting. But we will get to that a little bit later on. We'll get to all the details, all the juicy goss around that particular story. But I do want to, first of all, talk about this exhibition and the foundations upon which it is built, because clearly it is built upon the NGV's collection and the NGV has a very long collecting history when it comes to Rembrandt some very impressive pieces that we have on display in this particular exhibition. 
So I wanted to talk a little bit about that to start out with, to think about the NGV's own collection of Rembrandt prints. I believe there's about 130 of them in the collection and two paintings. And it all started about 130 years ago with 11 etchings, a purchase made from a collector called Seymour Hayden. So I wonder if you might start us off, Kathy, talking about the NGV's collection of Rembrandt prints and how this exhibition then came about from that. Sure, sure, sure. So um, as you mentioned, yes, uh, the NGV has really a renowned Rembrandt collection. It is one of the great pillars of our old master holdings here at the NGV. And as you rightly state, um, the first prints, uh, the first works that we purchased were prints and they came in in 1891. And uh, we've continued collecting over those 130 years um, uh, years and in fact we've actually made our most recent acquisition just this year um, coinciding with the exhibition but we do have about 137 prints we've got two drawings and we have two Rembrandt paintings and then uh, the painting that Caitlin has worked on which is Rembrandt Studio and Rembrandt so it's a very fine collection um, it's the best collection we <laughs> describe it as the best collection in the southern hemisphere and uh it is um, a world-class collection known internationally. Um, so the NGV has done various Rembrandt exhibitions over the years. In 1997, which is the last big Rembrandt exhibition, um, that was a major loan show. So um, we've been working towards this particular exhibition for about um, three or four years. And uh, we wanted to focus on our collection, but also to bring it into dialogue uh, with um, a, a really select group of very fine loans from institutions um, overseas. And my colleague Petra Kaiser in the um, print department uh, really uh, was the mastermind behind the exhibition. And uh, the loans um, include, as you mentioned, just wonderful paintings that have come from Europe and North, North America, uh, a number of them uh, highlighting particular aspects of Rembrandt's work um, and also uh, what Petra was aiming to do was to include a painting um, uh, that dealt with or, or in each of the thematic divisions of the show. Rembrandt um, was, uh, you know, was highly acclaimed um, artist in the 17th century. And one of the things that was um, really unusual about him in um, Holland in the 17th century is that he didn't specialise in just one subject, you know, as many Dutch artists of that period did. You know, you had tulip painters and you had animal painters and marine painters, but Rembrandt actually worked across a, um, a whole array of subjects, you know, from biblical subjects and historical subjects, portraiture, uh, nudes, landscape, uh, uh, mythological subjects and still and um, genre subjects, and this was highly unusual. So the show is organised uh, both um, thematically and chronologically, and within those thematic divisions, Petra was working on um, securing a painting in each of those sections, and I think um, uh, that works very well in the show. It certainly does. It is a, a really wonderful feature and it adds to the story because you can mm. see 
you know, his different techniques and the ways that he's, I guess, inspired by so many different themes. And Mm -hmm. another great point to make about this exhibition is that it's um, the most comprehensive exhibition of his work to be held in Australia in 25 years. So it also means that this is quite a very special opportunity for people to see them all in one place together. Uh, You know, they don't have to travel to the Louvre and Washington and Amsterdam to see all of these works together with the NGV's own works and collections. So, you know, it's great to see that they've drawn on so many different um, collecting institutions. And I wanted to, I guess, get into a bit about Rembrandt, the man, the artist, uh, Mm. because I was very struck by... Uh, not only the beauty of this wonderful exhibition catalogue, which I've got to say is a true masterwork in itself, but also the description that Petra gives Rembrandt at the beginning of the uh, catalogue, because she says that he's often been characterised as the stereotypical stubborn artist, a misunderstood genius, a heretic of art, um, and his life story has become the subject of conjecture and exaggeration. He apparently was quite non-conformist in his lifestyle. Uh, mm. He certainly did have many different wives, not all at once, of course, but um, he definitely, there was a lot of tragedy in his life, uh, but also the misfortune of bankruptcy. Uh, you know, he was quite an avid collector himself, not only of rare ob- and exotic objects, but also of prints. So I wonder, um, Kathy. And then I'll get to you, Caitlin, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about him as a person, his, you know, key uh, features, what we do know about him from the archives, from the the sources that we do have that are robust about his life. What, what when we think about Rembrandt, what should we think about him? Because I know we often go, oh, Picasso, I know, you know, what he was like. Uh, you know, how do we associate or what do we associate with Rembrandt? Yeah, great question. Um, so there is quite a lot of information um, about Rembrandt, not so much um, text that he's written, but quite a lot of documentary evidence. Um, I guess, uh, you know, he's born in 1606 from a, a family of um, millers, um, quite, uh, you know, well off. And we know that he was one of 10 children. He he was, he must have he and clearly was quite bright, so was sent to the Latin school. And he started his apprenticeship in about um, the age of um, 14. What is very interesting, quite early on, he sets up um, his own studio after his apprenticeship in about 1626. And two years after that, um, he's visited, he and his fellow um, studio mate are visited by uh, Konstantin Huygens, who is kind of most um, important um, art broker of the period. And he described the work of these two young artists and describes um, Rembrandt as all honour to thee, Rembrandt, this young beardless um, miller, son of a miller, uh, who whose work was exceptional in its expression of emotion. And that's something that you can see in the very earliest section of the exhibition, in the two early paintings, and it's something that really characterises Rembrandt's work right through his career is the expression of emotion. And he he, uh, puts great um, 
uh, emphasis upon that and is um, he does a lot of drawing from life and his uh, oeuvre includes you know, um, 300 uh, etchings, uh, you know, a large corpus of paintings and thousands of drawings. And so he drew constantly and they were a private practice um, uh, uh, where he was observing, 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 and that fed into the works that he made. So he moved to Amsterdam in 1631 to 32, and within that decade he became established as the most um, uh, sought-after and famous painter uh, in Amsterdam. So Amsterdam at this time is a thriving metropolis. Uh, there's, um, there's uh, you know, it's the centre of trade and there's very wealthy burger clientele who like to have paintings and etchings in their homes of biblical subjects and portraits and uh, so forth. And so Rembrandt very quickly became the leading painter in, uh, in um, Amsterdam. And he was what people were um, seeking or were so astonished with uh, in both his paintings and his etchings was this, this innovative technique. So I think what, what we think about with Rembrandt and one of the reasons why he is such a major artist um, across the centuries is his innovation, both in the painting technique uh, and also in his etchings as well. Um, he, his life story, as you said, is really very interesting. You know, he goes from that kind of professional high in the 1630s to personal tragedy. His wife, um, uh, Saskia, uh, uh, dies very shortly after she gives birth to their fourth child and Titus, um, their fourth child, child, Titus, and he's the only child of Rembrandt and Saskia's who actually survives into adulthood. Um, he then has, uh, uh, and this period brings on a kind of a depression or, uh, you know, he doesn't execute as many paintings. Um, he brings into his household a young nurse to look after Titus and begins a relationship with her. That doesn't end well. Um, she takes Rembrandt to court for, um, cl she claims that uh, he had promised to uh, support her or give her an allowance and um, uh, he, uh, Rembrandt did give her an allowance but uh, he had her committed to a house of corrections, um, which is a kind of rather unsavoury, uh, you know, really awful aspect mm. of, um, of Rembrandt. But during this same period, uh, during the 1630s and 40s, we know that Rembrandt bought um, a... Uh, a mansion, a kind of very expensive house, um, and he overextended himself. But in addition to that, he was also a kind. He also was a passionate collector and was collecting works of art, um, many many prints by um, after Raphael and by Dürer, you know his his predecessors and contemporaries, but also paintings and also all sorts of um, objects like. Uh, uh, natural objects like corals and shells and armadillos and birds of paradise and thinking again back to um, Amsterdam being this centre of trade, um, he buys all of this material and he gets into kind of quite 
um, financial difficulties. But Rembrandt, you know, so was he's established as this kind of um, the most important artist of the 1630s, and he was really cultivating the image of himself as this uh, gentleman, a gentleman collector who had this extraordinary collection uh, in his Kunstkammer, which he had a room dedicated on the ground floor where uh, people could view the works in his collection. He also used aspects of it for um, his paintings. Do you know he had turbans and um, exotic uh, uh, textiles and would dress his sitters up in those in those as well. But unfortunately, um, Rembrandt overextended himself and in the 1650s bring, begins a period of great financial difficulty where he has a lot of debtors and he's unable to pay his bills. So in 1654, he actually um, declares bankrupt. And that's terrible for Rembrandt, but it's been a boon for art historians because they had, they drew, um, his entire household was uh, inventoried and all of his collections. So we know that he had thousands of um, drawings of his own in albums. We know about the collection that he had, uh, all of the types of objects. We know how many paintings are in the house. And um, uh, unfortunately, the sale of uh, the items in the house wasn't enough to pay off the mortgage. In 1658, they actually had to move out of the house. So the last decade of Rembrandt's life is spent in great... Um, uh, poverty, but um, his third partner, and he didn't marry either of his second uh, life partners, Hendrika or um, Hertje, the one I mentioned earlier, because Saskia had left a clause in her will saying that uh, uh, Rembrandt would have to forego her dowry or fi uh, financial um, her finances if he were to remarry on her death. Quite amazing. Uh, so, yeah, amazing. How does it put, you know, the position of the other women, you know, when they're not formally married to well, a man like, in that age? Yes, well, absolutely. For his, for Hendrika, uh, she was excommunicated from her church for living oh. in sin. Mm -hmm. And in one of the rooms uh, in the exhibition, we've got um, wonderful self-portrait from the National Gallery of Art in Washington that shows Rembrandt after the bankruptcy. He's about 53 years of age and it's flanked by a portrait of Titus, um, who's a teenager at this time, and a beautiful portrait of Hendrika, his, um, his partner. And uh, she's probably in her early 20s and she's probably pregnant at that time with, uh, with their child, Cornelia, their daughter. Um, it's a beautiful series of portraits and it just, uh, it's wonderful to have them there uh, as they all post-date the bankruptcy or the period of the bankruptcy and just show the family unit at that time in their lives. And I think um, one of the really nice aspects of, the, of this exhibition is that Petra has drawn through very strong biographical elements that uh, so that by the time you've gone through the exhibition, you really have a much stronger understanding both of Rembrandt the artist through the works, but also of the details of his life. Indeed. Yeah, you, that's mm. so, so true. You do feel like that and, you know, you see some of his collectors and I think there was like a, a tax man in one of the etchings. That's um, nice. You know, it, it is very biographical throughout. Um, yes. And, you know, you do get to know 
his mother even. Uh, yes. Obviously, it makes sense for an artist to use the people around them as subjects as well as others, uh, sitters especially. I wanted to bring in Caitlin um, mm. on that point that you've made there, Kathy, about the paintings. Mm. And I know that um, there certainly is always for many people a bias towards paintings um, in a way because there's so much colour uh, especially with oil paintings, a lot of depth and richness in those paintings. And one that certainly caught my eye in that um, blue, pale blue room was mm. uh, the portrait of Hendrika uh, with Velvet Beret from 1654, which has been sourced from the Musée de Louvre in Paris. Mm. It I, I mean, I tried to take a photo of it and I cannot do it justice because mm -hmm. when you see it in person, it's like looking at sparkling jewellery. Mm -hmm. You know, like even the jewels that she's wearing, I actually thought they were real jewels. Like the way that uh, Rembrandt has depicted her, you know, she kind of, she's very warm um, and, and kind of comes out of the wall. And I think obviously it helps that the painted background um, supports the warmth of the tones in the painting. But I wonder, um, Caitlin, whether you can talk to us a little bit about the paintings in the collection that have been um, drawn not only from the NGV, the two that the NGV own, which we'll get to in a, a moment, but also ones that have been loaned, like the portrait of Hendrika. Yeah, absolutely. And as Cathy says, you know, Rembrandt from his earliest years was, a real innovator. He was doing things with his materials that, you know, other artists of his time weren't really doing. And he really demonstrates a very thorough understanding of the materials that he was using and the optical effects that he could create with them. So as you say, the sort of jewel-like tones that he gets um, from his paints and with the paint handling as well, the way he manipulates that paint with a brush to create optical effects, he was really sort of, um, you know, he was the master in that area. And his style does develop from those early years. We've got the two very early paintings, one from the NGV and one from the Rijksmuseum, um, where you see very uh, detailed and refined uh, painting, uh, a lot of different textural effects all captured in one uh, image. And then you see in the 30s, there's a beautiful, it's called a trony, it's sort of a character type um, painting of a man in a turban from the Rijksmuseum. And that's, you were talking about the jewel effects. Uh, mm. Lead white paint is one um, sort of pigment that uh, Rembrandt really brought to life, um, especially in that painting with the white in that turban. Uh, it's not captured well in photographs. It's really something that when you see it in person, you see this glow of light reflecting out from that white. Uh, it's really unlike anything else. We're talking about continue. here, the uh, just so people know if they want to look it up, um, it's called Man in Oriental Clothing from 1935. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sort of astonished that he's not even 30 when he's painted that painting. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Well, and it's also made on panel as well. So there's mm -hmm. clearly um, an important point there about the materials he's using. Yeah. And um, can you tell us, you know, having been and, and being a paintings conservator, um, mm -hmm. the types of um, surfaces that he's using to paint on? Mm 
Yeah, so a lot of, most of his early works are on wood panels and he um, would have sourced these from uh, panel makers. It's not something that he would have made himself in his studio. That has a really different type of surface compared to canvas, which is something that he used more and more in his later career. So he sort of transitions from this firm um, wood surface to canvas. Painting on canvas has a lot more give um, as you put the brush to the surface. You also have the texture of the canvas weave that's present in the painting as well. So you end up with a very different feel in the painting. And with his early canvases, we do think that he also sourced these from, um, you know, shops that would prepare them for painters. But as his career went on, he would more and more uh, bring some of these practices in-house and actually prepare the canvases from a bolt of fabric uh, stretching them over a wooden stretcher and applying the grounds himself. Um, and this sort of meant that he had a lot more control over that very first surface that he had at the start of, you know, beginning a composition. And that's actually really important in terms of Rembrandt research and authentication uh, with those paintings in the later years because what he was using in those preparatory layers uh, was unique to his studio so no one else um, in Amsterdam at the time was using the same materials. So when those are discovered through scientific analysis, it's one way that we can tie a painting to um, being produced within his studio and not, not somewhere else or not at a different time. Wow, that is really, really fascinating. Um, I want to draw in some of the paintings that took my eye as well. One is an NGV uh, painting. It's called Two Old Men Disputing yeah. uh, from 1628. So an earlier one, oil on wood panels. So again, as you say, mm -hmm. a different effect. It is very, um, once again, luminous, but also quite smooth. And mm -hmm. it doesn't have some of that kind of like the, the thickness of the brush stroke and the different types of um, way that he applied things in his, for for example, the later self-portraits. But, you know, when you're looking at the manuscript book in the top right corner and, you know, mm -hmm. the feet and some of the the little details, I think what struck me was also the hair of the beards mm -hmm. of the men, which is so fine, so delicate. It was almost like little strands of silk. You know, there seems to be a bit of a, I guess, theme in the sense that he had such a way with detail and intricacy and that translates not only in his paintings but also his prints. So I wonder if you both might be able to tell us about, you know, that aspect of his work and the the way that he depicted these subjects, the, the way that he depicted the detail of them in such an intricate and careful way. Yeah, I think, um, as you say, especially in those early paintings, they're almost like him showing off with all these different textures that he can create. And again, sort of speaking to that deep understanding of optical effects and how to recreate textures and different lighting effects through paint. Um, so, yeah, that to, to old men disputing, looking at the wood on the chair and the beautiful fabrics that are represented there and the flesh tones and, as you say, the beard. Um, yeah, it's almost like this smorgasbord of different textures. Yeah, it is one of those really rich 
things that you have to see in person. I know I'm going to say that a million times today, <laughs> but it's true. Um, Kathy, you know, you have clearly seen these Rembrandt prints up close yes. and the, the viewer at the exhibition really does also need to see these works up close, not only yes. because a lot of them are quite small, but the detail that you see when you yes. get up close to them is phenomenal. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. And and that's right. It's been it's been lovely for us to see how closely people are looking at the works in the show. And I think um, right at the very beginning uh, of his career, when he first looks takes up etching, they're tiny. They're tiny, tiny little um, pieces of metal, of copper that he's um, working on. And that's because he's uh, actually learning how to etch. And um, he has an extra, in those early etchings of his mother, I think you mentioned those um, very beautiful little, almost slightly bigger than, a, well, like a post-it note size, actually. Um, and what he's able to convey with the etching needle, which is, you know, drawing through a ground onto the copper plate, and then um, it's immersed in an acid bath, which bites the line so you can print them, is extraordinary sense of texture as Caitlin's saying so the texture of the wrinkles in her face the, the flowing strands of hair he gets all of that and the shading just under the eye things like that but you know what is really also I think worth noting here is that whilst they're very detailed um, in their execution they're really unusual for etchings at this time and in fact Rembrandt revolutionised the medium, the etching medium. You know, it had been used um, principally prior to Rembrandt um, to mimic, um, to be an easier form of engraving. So the lines were very regular, the kind of, you know, in parallel and um, systematised. And Rembrandt, um, what etching actually enables you to do is to introduce um, the freedom of drawing. And you see that even in these very early etchings, that one of his mother, there's zigzag lines where he's just drawing the stylus easily through the waxy ground. So this kind of spontaneity of line that you see in his earliest etchings is something that took his um, contemporaries and, you know, they were they were amazed by, and the, we've got several contemporary accounts, you know, talking about, you know, Rembrandt's uh, bizarre technique or, you know, the um, this kind of uh, sketchiness of his technique. So I think that's a kind of, um, you know, looking back from this perspective that's hard to judge because, of course, everything builds on Rembrandt's etching technique. It continues to be the exemplar that even today that um, etchers kind of aspire to, but um, really innovating at that time. Yeah, oh, it's quite, quite amazing. You are tuned into 3RRRFM, this show being Uncommon Sense, and I'm Amy Mullins. And I'm sure that you, like me, have been enjoying hearing from the wonderful professionals from the NGV, Kathy Lay and also Caitlin Bria. Kathy being senior curator of prints and drawings at the NGV, and Caitlin being conservator of paintings at the NGV. And we are talking about Rembrandt True to Life, the exhibition that's on up until the 10th of September at the NGV International on the ground floor. 
We were just talking about the amazing details within Rembrandt's prints, his etchings, and just how innovative he was in expanding the way that we could see the role of printmaking. And I wanted to jump back onto that before we get back to painting, Kathy, because a lot of people, I'm sure, wouldn't be as familiar with things like the words etching and dry point and um, burn and different states of prints. These are all quite technical things, but yeah. they aren't that complicated once you get to know it. And it mm. certainly does add to the appreciation of a print, especially mm. one like Christ crucified between the two thieves, the three crosses from 1653. And that's such a wonderful example in the museum towards the end of the exhibition there are two states. There's a third state from the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam and a fourth state that the NGV holds. And um, I was fortunate to study a fourth state that the Bailey Library holds here in Melbourne as well. So there's some really interesting different states of this print that provide a huge amount of drama and different effects between the two states. So I wonder, Kathy, if you could tell yeah. us a little bit about the medium or the mode of printmaking, the fact that, of course, that those ones feature dry point and what that means and, and obviously the effect of the different states with the three crosses prints. What makes this particular print so special, so dramatic, so wonderful that, you know, draws people in? Yeah, sure. It is uh, one of the great masterpieces of Rembrandt's um, print oeuvre. It's one of the largest and after you've come away from those little tiny post-it-sized uh, uh, etchings of his mother, uh, you get through to this print which is one of his largest. Um, and you mentioned states, Amy, and they're, they're an important um, uh, but you know, easily understood, but important part of um, the way in which a print uh, is made. And when an artist is working on the plate, they're drawing on the plate, um, what they then can do is um, take an impression, is actually print it, uh, and to see how the image is progressing. And then they might make um, further changes and... Uh, you know, either add things or, you know, um, you can burnish um, things out of the plate or add a different technique. And then if they take it, want to have another look at how the image is progressing, then they might take another impression. Each of those changes is what we call a state. So quite, quite simple. It's just kind of a progress check-in. Um, and Rembrandt was a real master of um, states and he was, uh, uh, and there are a lot of, um, he, uh, he, he worked his plates through uh, numerous states in finalising um, the composition. And he did that, you know, for artistic purposes, but um, he's also a very canny um a marketer of his own work and he began to realise that there was, you know, he, the, there was great interest in his prints and there was a market for them and there was a connoisseur's market. And so he would often um, make a different state uh, uh, for that kind of reason and he would also um, have variant impressions. So he would print... Um, 
he would use different papers. So he was he was one of the first artists to do that. He used Japanese papers. Uh, he, in some instances, he even printed on um, vellum, so animal skin. Mm. And each of these different papers or surfaces would impart a different quality to the print. And we see that really especially with the print that you, you're so interested in, which I love too, uh, the um, Christ crucified between the two thieves. This print is worked in dry point and just in dry point only. And dry point um, differs from etching, which we've been talking about previously, in that rather than covering the surface of the copper plate with a ground um, and then drawing freely through it, um, the artist, Rembrandt, then just takes a dry point needle and he draws directly into the copper. And as he draws, he um, pulls the stylus, which is a pointed needle, um, through the copper. The copper throws up what we call a little burr. It's like a little shaving of copper and it sits alongside the, the, the fine scratch. And when it's printed, um, it gives this wonderful... A smudge of ink, kind of a blur, uh, velvety quality of the ink. And Rembrandt loved that. You know, we know um, Rembrandt's paintings are very tonal, um, particularly in his mid-period mid and later period. And so he starts to use dry point extensively to get these kind of great chiaroscuro effects, effects of light and shade into his prints. So these this print uh, and others of this period, uh, he uses dry point extensively, and that's very unusual. The drawback with dry point is that it flattens very quickly. So the plate will only give you about 50 impressions. So the point of a print, of course, is to do multiple impressions. You can sell them more cheaply, but because you can do 100 of them, you can um, get the price that you might charge for a painting, for example. And yeah. it also makes your work available at a um, lower level, uh, you know, to a kind of a, to to different kind of clientele. So uh, what Rembrandt did, so he printed he 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 uh, with this uh, composition, and you have the Christ uh, on Golgotha and on the cross between the two thieves, surrounded in the foreground by great multitudes of people who come to witness the crucifixion scene. You've got, um, you know, the people, uh, the men playing dice at the base of the cross. You've got, uh, you know, the um, Virgin Mary and Christ's uh, followers there and a whole uh, multitude of people. And so Rembrandt depicts the scene as the kind of Christ you know the, the 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 not spectacle but the the incidental uh aspects of you know the story what he then does in the fourth state because by the end of uh printing that the plate is beginning to wear rather than thinking oh well that's the end of the plate you know that's it mm. he uses it as an opportunity to completely re uh, consider the composition and what he does is one of the most extraordinary things in the history of printmaking really is he takes the stylus up again the needle and he drags it through the copper and he crosses out like kind of like these great um, torrents of dry point lines that fall from the heavens and obliterate 
all of the kind of uh, people in the foreground. And so the focus then is, so in these, uh, the, this, the later impressions, the later states, mm. you now have this focus, this great kind of tumultuous play of dark and light in the midst of which just focusing in on the dying Christ. And so it brings this kind of new reading. So rather than rather than the focus on the participants and the event, we now turn to a focus on this climactic moment where Christ, as we know from the Bible, is reported to have, you know, cried out, you know, my father, why hast thou forsaken me? The kind of, you know, the kind of the agony at the moment of his death. So he was such a master of using um, the technical means to bring, um, uh, you know, extraordinary emotional or expressive content through into his works. It's, it's wonderful to have the early state of that print from the Rijksmuseum that we've borrowed alongside our late uh, fourth state uh, to, to show for, for visitors to be able to see that difference in what the artist was doing. Yeah, I love it. I'm a big fan of the fourth state, if you can't already <laughs> tell, those shards of light and dark at the top beaming down and, as you say, obscuring those figures. It just gives me chills to look it's, at it. It's extraordinary. It is yeah. extraordinary. Mm. And there are other examples of, you know, comparisons. There are a couple of others and, you know, they... Um, uh, for example, Christ presented to the people. Um, mm. There's one on Japanese paper, a seventh state from the Rijksmuseum versus uh, one that we have here that is a fifth state. And there are also um, different compositional elements to that as well with uh, people, a crowd in the foreground, and then they disappear in the seventh That's state. Nice. Um there's also the the oatmeal paper, which is really beautiful in one of those other pieces, I think, that had a lion in it from, from memory. It's a lovely, a lovely, lovely work from St, of St Jerome showing him in an Italianate landscape. That's right. And yeah. we have two impressions of that. The NGV is very fortunate. We have one on white paper, which um, Rembrandt um, left whole areas of that composition uh, unworked. And so, you know, as if it's unfinished, it's not unfinished. It just has this beautiful contrast between highly worked and unworked areas. And on the white paper, it looks like um, St Jerome is resting in the landscape on a sunny day, you know, so it gets this brilliant sparkling white of the paper against the black ink. And then on the oatmeal paper, which is a kind of um, more tanny coloured, it seems far more muted. So Rembrandt was exploring different atmospheric effects that he could achieve in his prints. Mm, it's so worth seeing those differences because they are mm. really beautiful and, mm. you know, you have to you know, get right up close um, to see just and appreciate it to its full extent. Um, I wanted to also just mention drawing before we get to you, Caitlin, and your conservation work, um, mm -hmm. because the drawings for me were a huge highlight and I don't know if I expected them to be. Um, I love drawings, but the, the ink in particular drawings and also chalk as well, uh, were really, really striking. And there were a couple that I, um, I guess, picked out in my mind as standing out for me. And the way that he uses line in such an expressive but also very economical way and, you know, just 
it screams, you know, I guess movement and dynamism, yes. but, um, you know, it feels so modern when you're, when, yes. you're, when you're looking at his strokes, but it's obviously not modern. Uh, and I'm thinking in, of course of different types of drawings like Daniel in the lion's den from 1650, which was a pen and brown ink with brown wash, um, and opaque white from the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. Um, there's also Susanna and the elders, which is really quite amazing pen and yes. brown ink, uh, with a grey wash um, from the Rijksmuseum and that being an important study for a painting of the same topic, a very, uh, you know, popular topic for painters. Mm. Uh, could you just tell us, um, Kathy, before I jump yes. to Caitlin, about the drawings in mm. the show and I guess what you appreciate about them being, you know, a senior curator of not only prints but also mm. drawings? Well, as you say... To see Rembrandt's drawings is a really rare treat. The NGV, we're very fortunate to have two, but it's only two. He is one of the great draftsmen of all time. As I mentioned earlier, his drawings weren't for uh, public. They were absolutely for himself. Um, do you know, so like the etchings and the paintings are made um, by commission or to go out into the public world. The drawings were not. There are some, like the one that you mentioned, the Susanna and the elder, Elders, um, that are directly related to painting, so where he's working out compositional elements, but that's by and far the kind of um, the more minor number of uh, Rembrandt's drawings that do that. On the whole, as I mentioned, he was a constant observer. We know that he you know, went on many walks around Amsterdam and he had a little pocketbook and would make sketches um, of uh, things that he would see, you know, bridges and uh, views of Amsterdam and kind of ramshackle cottages. And um, there's one such drawing in the exhibition in chalk and it's very quickly um, noted down, as you can imagine, as you're walking mm. around. And then Rembrandt would use aspects of those um uh, landscape drawings to recombine in the studio, he'd, he'd combine bits of um, this view of Amsterdam with that kind of cottage. And so they're, they're very much his, his landscapes uh, etchings are, are composites. They're not, they're not, you know, sitting directly in front of a scene where you can see it. And I think what you really appreciate with Rembrandt's drawings and the ones that you, that you mentioned, like Daniel in the Lion's Den's spectacular mm. work, is the brevity. So it is, you know, he is such a sure hand that the economy of means that he uses, so it's just a line um, perhaps that can capture the movement of a body or the kind of just the wash that then gives solidity or volume to it. It is, um, and also then uh, other drawings, you know, is the kind of sense of compassion for the subject, you know, little children or humorous little elements like kind of a dog that just captured midair. Mid He's able to observe, um, you know, his observations, he's able to uh put them down with this kind of extraordinary economy of means. And so his drawings have this wonderful sense of what they reveal to us about 
what Rembrandt's looking at or what he's thinking about. Um, but you can also revel in um, just the beauty of the line and the economy of the line and and the and the te- and the memes that he's used. So there are there are real <laughs> a real um, uh, thrill to have mm. uh, these extra drawings here. And I think you're right. You know. Um, they are one of the most amazing aspects of his work. And they, you know, as, as one of the things is always said about drawings is that they give you such an insight into the hand and the thinking of the artist. Yeah. So there's, there's that aspect as well that I think that's so enjoyable. It does. It feels very intimate. You mm. feel like you're there um, mm. with the, with him, especially in that um, the chalk drawing I'm thinking of, the... Uh, I'm just trying to find where it is. Old man seated, red and black chalk from the Tyler's Museum in Harlem. That has a bit more detail in it, but it also gives you this um, beautiful kind of intimate feeling of being there while he's sketching that man. Um, I do. Yeah. yeah, and that vibrancy of the chalk as well. Yeah. Uh, let's talk to Caitlin as well about the amazing work that you're doing mm-hmm. and have been doing working on that uh, painting that we referenced earlier on. It is mm-hmm. um, this wonderful portrait of Rembrandt, perhaps, I guess, um, a self-portrait, maybe if he had a hand in it, maybe not. And I'd love mm-hmm. to hear more about what you've discovered working so closely with a painting. I know it must be a, as well a very intimate process given that you're getting to know the artist so closely, um, you know, working on the painting but also getting to know perhaps the underlayers and using technology as well to see what the artist was doing. So would you give us a little bit of an idea about that project that you've been working on, Caitlin? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you say, yeah, it is a very intimate process it's usually just me and the painting you know inches away from it working on it the process of actually treating the painting which in this case involved uh, removing discolored varnish and restoration over paint uh, took about eight months but this project also involved a lot of research uh, which is in continuation of um, significant research that has uh, been done over the last 90 years So this painting came into the NGB collection in 1933. And at that time, it was believed to be the first Rembrandt painting to come to an Australian collection. Um, Almost as soon as it arrived, people, you know, in the media and scholars, that sort of thing, were expressing doubts as to the attribution of the painting. Um, The NGB always considered it to be by Rembrandt, There were mixed opinions by scholars, but it wasn't until the Rembrandt Research Project, which uh, started in the late 60s, this was a group of Rembrandt scholars who um, got together with the aim of really defining Rembrandt's work, at least in his paintings, by examining the paintings closely, using scientific uh, examination methods where possible uh, to find out more about the paintings. Um, so when they came to Melbourne, they, they looked at all three works, um, all three paintings, uh, that we have in the collection. And this one they did decide was, uh, you know, in their opinion, not by Rembrandt. They actually thought it was a much later painting, probably a follower from the 18th century. And 
that was kind of a blow to the NGP. Um, that was when they did officially change the attribution, you know, the labels on the wall and that sort of thing. But it wasn't really the end of the story. In the 90s, actually, ahead of the exhibition, the last Rembrandt exhibition at the NGP that we mentioned earlier, um, the then new paintings conservator John Payne started looking at this painting in more depth and using uh, newer technical means to analyse the work. And he discovered two pieces of you know, new evidence um, that kind of changed the, the outlook on the painting. Uh, the first one was looking at an X-ray in which you can see the weave of the canvas, so the sort of thread uh, count of the, um, the actual fabric. And what he found was that it matched perfectly with two other paintings from Rembrandt's studio. One's at the Met, it's a painting of Flora, um, and that's an uncontested, you know, attributed painting to Rembrandt. And the other is also from his studio, it's another self-portrait uh, at the Harvard Art Museums in the US. Um, and then the second piece of evidence that he found was I alluded to this before, it was analysing the ground layer, that very first layer of paint that's put on the canvas before the composition is painted. Uh, he found fine quartz spread throughout that ground layer. And this was one of those materials that only Rembrandt was using at this time when he was preparing his canvases in his studio. The reasons he was using this is not completely clear. It probably has to do with... Um, the texture that it imparts uh, gives the paint a bit of tooth when you're you're applying paint layers to that layer. There may be other optical effects as well. Um, the very first time he used this was in one of his most famous paintings, The Night Watch, which is at the Rijksmuseum. Museum. Uh, that was completed in 1642, so sort of at the height of his career, kind of mid-career. Um, that was the first time he used it, and it may be something to do with how flexible that ground layer is because it was such a huge painting. I think it's almost mm. four metres wide, over three and a half metres tall. It would have had to be rolled and, and, and moved that way. That may be one reason. Um, whatever the reason was, it's a really great way to uh, tie paintings to um, his studio production. So, yeah, this painting of Rembrandt in the NGV collection was reconsidered again. And, um, yeah, you really couldn't deny that it was 17th century. It did come from Rembrandt's studio. But stylistically, there were still doubts over whether this was by Rembrandt. Rembrandt did have studios, uh, sorry, students in his studio throughout his career. And the thinking is that this was probably something done by one of his students but maybe with the hand of, of Rembrandt himself as well. Yeah, and I know that that's often the case, is that there is mm -hmm. often artistic collaboration and input from multiple mm -hmm. artists when there's a school or a, a studio uh, with multiple students. So, you know, it's, it's really exciting um, to see mm -hmm. that and also to speculate, you know, and we may not ever know, I guess, but it's really wonderful that the NGV does have that example. It is a really wonderful painting in and of itself, and I'm sure after mm -hmm. spending so much time with it, Caitlin, you must have a certain fondness for it. I do, yeah, you do get, you do kind of, um, 
yeah, form these sort of weird bonds with the paintings that you work on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one thing that really did come out to me was that this painting does appear to be unfinished. Mm. Uh, there are parts of the painting that are worked up to a greater degree than others. And so that actually complicates the assessment of attribution even further. Uh, there aren't many incomplete works by Rembrandt, especially paintings that are known. So there aren't many comparisons for a, a painting in this kind of state. No, it's um, it's really exciting. It's great that we have that as part of our collection. Um, and I wanted to just mention that there is, uh, if people don't know, a really wonderful um, opportunity at the Rijksmuseum to see the Night Watch, uh, which is that very large painting you were talking about, mm -hmm. be mm -hmm. uh, restored. It has its own kind of room. I think it's behind glass uh, from memory mm -hmm. when I saw a video of it. Um, so it's a really exciting way that galleries are engaging the public in seeing the restoration process and in and seeing, I guess, the other side, the behind the scenes of what happens at a major uh, institution like the Rijksmuseum or, of course, the National Gallery here in Victoria. Um, I want to say a huge thank you to you both because it's just been so wonderful, so nourishing to talk about art and to get a better sense of Rembrandt. And I hope that we have provoked people to go to the exhibition and not only just go to the exhibition but consider going to the event where they can hear from multiple people involved in the conservation of Rembrandt's works including yourself Caitlin there's an, mm -hmm. an event on Saturday the 9th of September between 1 and 3 p.m at the Clemenger BBDO auditorium at the NGV International it is Auslan interpreted and it's called Revealing Rembrandt, and it does feature multiple people, as I said, involved in the conservation of paper, painting, and prints. So you can get to understand in even more depth the wonderful materials and techniques. So thank you both for joining me today, both Kathy Leahy, Senior Curator of Prints and Drawings, and also Caitlin Breer, who is Conservator of Paintings at the NGV. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much, You're Amy. Welcome. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely lovely to chat. And make sure that you head along to the exhibition, Rembrandt True to Life, which closes on Sunday the 10th of September. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.